This morning's message uh, comes from the end of John chapter 4, and I'm going to, uh, I don't like to start sermons with apologies, but this one's going to start with an apology. I am sorry that the words are not going to be on the screen, so if you don't have a Bible to follow along, uh, you'll just have to listen this time. And so um, in my rush to get everything together for this online worship service, that was just one too many things for me to be able to put together. So um, uh, at the very least, it causes us to appreciate afresh the wonderful AV people that help us every week in our worship services. Um, next time you see one of those people, be sure to tell them thank you for the work that they do. It's always behind the scenes. It's it's often thankless, um, but it's so crucial and necessary, and they do such a great job helping us in so many ways. But look, uh, the, the Word of God is going to proceed regardless of the weather and being online, not having words on the screen, uh, even if everything else gets canceled, uh, the, the proclamation of God's word will continue at EMC, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, last week, we began our look at the signs um, in the Gospel of John, and um, we looked at the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine in Cana, and this week, we're going to look at what John calls the second sign, and that's going to be the healing of the royal official's son at the end of chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 46 down through 54. But I'm going to start reading from verse 43, because I think those verses between there and 46, 43, 44, and 45, are really essential to, to getting at the heart of John's purpose behind including this particular story at this particular point in his gospel. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43 and going down to the end of the chapter. At the end of the two days, Jesus went on to Galilee. He himself had said that a prophet is not honored in his hometown. Yet the Galileans welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and had seen everything he did there. As he traveled through Galilee, he came to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son who was about to die. Jesus asked, Will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? The official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. Then Jesus told him, Go back home. Your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. While the man was on his way, some of the servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. He asked them when the boy had begun to get better, and they replied, Yesterday afternoon at one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. Then the father realized that that was the very time Jesus had told him, Your son will live. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. This was the second miraculous sign Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. Apparently, Jesus had done some amazing things while he was spending time in Jerusalem, what John even refers to as miraculous signs back in chapter 2. But he highlights this event here in chapter 4 as the second of Jesus' signs in Galilee. And he chose to share it in his gospel at this point in time for a specific reason, which will be sort of the main concern that we have here together this morning. I, I, I want to start by noting the context of where Jesus has been 
and what he has been doing since we last saw him last week back in chapter 2 there in Cana. After Cana, we're told that Jesus traveled south down to Jerusalem and, and in Judea for the Passover. And there, some things happened that you probably will recall from your own reading through the Gospel of John. He cleansed the temple. And then he um, had his famous conversation with, with Nicodemus about the necessity of being born again to enter the kingdom of God. And concerning his time there in Jerusalem, John will tell us there at the end of chapter 2 this. He says, because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. And I want you to remember that statement. It's going to be key to understanding everything John is doing here in this passage going forward. In chapter 3, we're going to find Jesus baptizing out in the Judean wilderness before heading back north through Samaria in chapter 4, where he has that famous encounter with the Samaritan woman there at the well. And there in verse 26, Jesus himself will claim that he is the Messiah. He, it'll come from his own mouth to the Samaritan woman that he is the Messiah. And the account of his time there ends with many of the Samaritans in the local villages believing in him. They welcome him. Verse 42, they declare him to be savior of the world. And that brings us right back to where we started here in verse 43. Two days later, after spending time in Samaria, Jesus is headed back north toward Galilee. And as he does, John tells us there in verse 44, a statement that, again, you've probably been familiar with. You've heard Jesus say similar things in the other Gospels. John notes, and he notes it here for a reason, that Jesus himself had said that a prophet is not honored in his hometown. Or perhaps more, a more fitting translation of that word here in this context is in his homeland, as in not Samaria. So it seems that wherever Jesus goes, whether it's in the south in Judea or it's in the north in Galilee, there's this there's there's something to this idea that prophets aren't welcomed in their in their in their own hometown. And and you might be saying, well, Pastor Sean, didn't John a moment ago just say that Jesus was welcome there? And and yes, he did. But we need to unpack what that welcome looked like. You see, in Samaria, Jesus had enjoyed for the first time in his ministry a, an open-hearted reception to the things he had to say. They believed in him, we're told, and not on account of his signs and miracles. They had believed in him on the account of a woman's testimony. And then later, as Jesus came and was teaching them himself, they came to believe on account of the things he had to say. And they begged him to stay there. That was the reception he received in Samaria. But now that he's going back to his own people, and so far in John's gospel, anytime Jesus is around his, his own people, his reception well, it's not very warm, it seems. In chapter 2, when he's in Jerusalem, verses 18 and verses 20, you know, we see the Jewish leaders there in Jerusalem who are challenging him and his authority. They're, they're saying, you know, how can you be doing these kinds of things? Because they don't understand or believe in who he is. In verse 22, John gives us this little statement that tells us that the things Jesus was saying, the things that Jesus was doing there in Jerusalem, even his own disciples misunderstand him. It, it, in fact, they didn't understand until sometime later after the resurrection what, what he was talking about. So there's rejection, there's misunderstanding and confusion. We already noted back in uh, verses 23 through 25 that his, even his supposed converts there in Jerusalem are not to be trusted. Their, their, their conversion was suspect at best. In chapter 4, 
when Jesus is out baptizing in, in the Judean wilderness, we're told that there was rising rivalry and divisions that were beginning to come up among his disciples and the disciples of John the Baptist. And so you see all around Jesus, his own people are having trouble understanding who he is, recognizing what he's there to do, uh, whose authority in which he, he does what he does, what his uh, presence and mission actually mean for those who would follow him. And, and none of this should come as a surprise to us if we remember John's prologue. Remember, John has laid so much of what he's going to talk about out in the, in the first several verses of chapter 1. And he said back there in chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own people and even they rejected him. And I think we're even seeing that here in our passage in, in beginning in verse 46 in Galilee. Yes, John says they welcomed him, but I think John says that with a deep irony. You see, the welcome that Jesus received in Galilee, in a lot of ways, mirrors the welcome that he received in Judea. It's one that is based exclusively on his ability to perform the miraculous. It's not like the welcome he got with the Samaritans. It is a different kind of welcome, and it is one that Jesus is not looking for. He's looking for something more. Now, the word in our passage in verse here, 40, verse 46 here that is translated royal official refers to someone who is officially connected in the service of a king or a ruler. In this case, it would be Herod, who we know is not a king, properly so-called, but he was treated like one in many people's eyes. And there's no evidence in our passage here that the man who came to Jesus there in the beginning of verse 46 really had a, a full understanding of who Jesus actually was or even knew Jesus in a personal way at all. In fact, his approach to Jesus seems to be one born out of pure desperation, not unlike how you or I would have, would have approached Jesus in the same type of circumstances. I'm imagining what I would do if one of my own children was, was lying sick and dying and no one else around could do anything to help, to help that child. Uh, what would I do in that moment? I would do anything. What parent at the end of their rope seeking aid for their child wouldn't exhaust every possible option to possibly save them? And here this man knows something about Jesus, and he has heard that Jesus has returned to the area. And he comes in the hope that maybe Jesus, when no one else can help, no one else has answers, no one else can take this fever away. Maybe, maybe the one who changed water into wine, maybe he has the power to do something. I know he has power over, over the natural order. Maybe he has power over even sickness as well. Now, Jesus, knowing the, the hearts of people, I think detects a glimmer of faith in the man's heart, but it's a faith that desires a help from Jesus, not so much one that trusts in Jesus. And that's a pretty big distinction that I think John is really trying to bring to our attention in, in all of his gospel here up to this point. Jesus rebukes the man at first, and, but his rebuke there in verse 48 is actually a plural rebuke. When he says you, he's saying you all. And, and that indicates to us that he's not just speaking about the man here. He's speaking about the Galileans as a whole. What, what he's seeing in this person's life, this person who's heard that Jesus is in the area, he's rushed to him and asked him to do something for him. Jesus senses this type of attitude and this approach to him in all of the people there in Galilee. Sure, you welcome me. You're, you welcome me as I come back. But will you, all of you, only ever welcome me as long as I do miraculous signs and wonders as long as I do the thing that you ask me to come do for you? In other words, 
Is your focus just on the signs? Is your focus just on what I can do for you? Or is your focus on what they reveal about me? Is your focus on who I really am? And that's a critical distinction. That's a sign to Albuquerque. <laughs> Might point you to Albuquerque. But the sign to Albuquerque is not Albuquerque. Now, I think you get the point. The signs serve to point to something beyond themselves. And so far, whether in the south or in the north, Jesus is finding people interested in the signs and not so much in him. And the rest of John's material here is going to reveal this very problem as an ongoing, continual problem in the hearts of the Israelites. Chapter 5, which we'll see next week, the very next passage, you see opposition to Jesus continuing to grow when he goes back to Jerusalem for another, uh, another uh, fest, uh, celebration. In chapter 6, you see the, the nature of Jesus' messiahship come into serious question. In fact, we're told that many of his disciples, the people who'd begun to follow him everywhere he was going, start to abandon him. And that sort of downward trajectory of people's reckoning of who Jesus is and their commitment to him, we see come to a climax in chapter 12 with the large-scale failure of the Jews to believe in him at all. And so it is with all of this in mind, when we go back to the beginning of my message where I talked about why John included these passages where he did in the sequencing of his, of his gospel, it's, it's, it's with all of these things in mind that we begin to see the value of the Samaritan interlude there at the beginning of chapter 4. Because as, as someone is picking up this gospel for the first time, and as they're beginning to read through, and they, they know who Jesus is because John tells us in his prologue, but then we begin to see the ways that people are responding to him, and the ways that people approach him, and the ways that people receive or don't receive him. John wants us to know, right there in chapter 4, in the midst of all the rejection and all the confusion, who Jesus really is. He is the one sent from the Father, the one sent to offer eternal life. He is the Savior of the world. And that, that interlude declares that it is faith in His Word, not just in His signs. Faith in His Word is what Jesus is after in the hearts of people. It's amazing that the hated Samaritans, those low-down, you know, pagan, apostate, you know, racially hybrid dogs... <laughs> They accept him, which puts into real contrast his own people rejecting him, his own people who can't move past their obsession with miracles, their obsession with politics. And this contrast challenges you and me, the reader, as we're, as we're presented with these, these two approaches and these two perspectives and these two attitudes towards Jesus. It challenges us to assess our own perspective, our own attitudes, our own approach to Jesus. Perhaps what's going on in Judea and in Galilee describes it some, in some way your life this morning as you approach Jesus with, with what you're looking for from him. Why are you coming to Jesus? What are you expecting him to be or to do? Who do you think he really is? Now, whether you're looking at the Judeans or the Galileans, Jesus is only really welcomed on the basis of his miracle working, isn't he? And Jesus never encourages this kind of faith. Faith that seeks his aid without ever really seeking 
him. It's not the kind of faith that honors God, that's for sure. Because this kind of faith seeks God to, for God to serve us rather than the other way around, doesn't it? It's, it's viewing Jesus as, as someone that I can manipulate, something I can control. Yes, the miracles and the signs and the answered prayers, all those things have value and all those things are, are gracious gifts from, from Jesus to the world. And they're, and they're helpful as a starting point for real faith. But ultimately, they don't mean anything if they don't lead us beyond the moment to the one doing the miracle. If, if answered prayer does not have the effect of you, of the affections of your heart being put upon the one who's answering the prayer, then the answer of prayer has very little meaning in the grand scheme of things. See, the answering of prayer and the performing of signs and miracles are meant to reveal the glory of the one behind them. Beyond the miracles, true believers seek the Lord who does them. So again, I, I challenge you. I, quest, I ask you to, to question yourselves. When you come to Jesus, what are you coming to him for? Are you coming to Jesus because you desire him to do something for you? Or are you coming to Jesus because you desire him? And that is a huge distinction between genuine faith and counterfeit faith. Or faith that doesn't measure up. Or, or the faith of those that Jesus doesn't trust because he knows what's in the heart. Real faith. The faith of those who desired the Lord is going to be expressed in the obeying of his commands and in the trusting of his promises. But if Jesus is nothing more to you than just a miracle worker, if he's nothing more, more to you than some sort of political pawn, someone who exists to meet your needs, someone who exists to fulfill your demands, to advance your agenda, well then, to you, he is not the Lord at all, but merely a tool to accomplish your own ends. And so with irony, John says that Jesus was welcomed by the Galileans. But to treat him as a tool is to oppose him, ultimately. I, and so because of that, I don't think what's happening with the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem is really all that different than what is happening with the, the Galileans who are welcoming him because of his miracles. Because at the end of the day, if that's all he is to you, you're, it's a rejection of who he is and what he has come to do in your life. And this is true for those of us who, who, like these people, are only interested in his ability to perform the miraculous in our midst. When the only time we have interest in Jesus is when we are at some sort of critical moment, we need him to do something. Yeah, I've ignored his word. I've ignored his claim of lordship upon my life. I don't live for Jesus. I don't live for his will, the will of God to be worked out in my life. I sort of living my own life. But when times get hard or when things get rough or I have someone in my life is sick, critically ill, or some you know, major catastrophe happens with my finances, fill in the blank, suddenly Jesus is the most important person in our lives. And so, yeah, there, there's many of us who come to him when, when we have a, a need or we, we have a, something we want him to do. But those who have no interest in his in what his word has to say about your life or, or what he deems are the deeper issues or concerns for you, well, you can't say that you have true faith. But listen, I have good news for you. You might be sitting there thinking, well, Pastor Sean, that, now that I think about it, that kind of describes my approach to Jesus. Um, I, I start to realize that maybe I don't so much desire Jesus as much as I just desire the things he can do for me. Well, I have good news for you, and that is there's still hope for your life. <laughs> <laughs> there's still, there's still a, a word of, of optimism and promise for you in this passage. You know what amazes me about this story the most? 
it's not so much the healing of the boy, the sign itself. I mean, that's miraculous and it's amazing. And I love how John gives us the, the, the understanding of the sequencing of things that, that Jesus said it. And then as the man gets home, it would have been probably some 20 mile walk. It would have been the next day before he got home and he, he gets the news that his boy was healed and that the fever disappeared around the exact same time he was talking to Jesus. I love sort of that, that the data that helps us kind of get a feel for how it all played out. But what amazes me in this story, something even more than the, the sign, the miracle itself, is that despite all of the misunderstanding, despite all of the selfish motives of people, even despite all the rejection Jesus has received, Jesus continues drawing near. Jesus continues drawing near. And that's because at the heart of his mission in this world is to seek and to save the lost. Jesus could have enjoyed a long, fruitful, prosperous ministry in Samaria. Think about it. Jesus could have gone there. I'm thinking as a pastor, you know, how much perseverance does does a pastor have trying to offer, you know, God's love and God's word to a congregation that rejects him? I mean, it's so much easier to say, you know what? I'm tired of the rejection. I'm, I'm going to go somewhere where I'm appreciated. I'm going to go and I'm going to preach to people who love my sermons and, you know, pay me the better salary and do all the things for me. Uh, and, and so it's a much easier time than what I'm experiencing with this group of people. It's so easy. It's almost natural to us to think that way, but not with Jesus. He could have enjoyed a long, fruitful ministry in Samaria, but Jesus is drawn to those who reject him the most. And he wants all of us to know that it's not his signs that save us. A cross is needed for that. One that will be provided for him by the very people he's pursuing. And it is the self-giving of his life in love there that saves. Not just for the Jew. And not just for the Samaritan. But for all who call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. The young and the old. The near and the far. The ones who welcome him gladly. And the ones who persist in their apathy, and in their rejection, and even in their betrayal. For the ones who say yes to his miracles, and even to the ones who say no to his person. For God so loved all the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And the heart of God, revealed in Christ, is so much more amazing than any of the signs that point to it. His heart for you and his heart for me in the midst of our confusion and rejection and misunderstanding. Jesus' accusation in verse 48 that they won't believe unless they see the signs and wonders is not just an indictment on their lack of faith there in Galilee. It's more than that. And I hope you see the rebukes of Jesus as more than just an indictment against something. The rebuke of Jesus in verse 48 
is a challenge to the father. This father, not his father, to this father, the royal official. It's a challenge to him to put real faith in who Jesus is. And because of that, the rebuke of Jesus, and only we can only say this about God, <laughs> truly. The rebuke of Jesus is actually an act of grace. Think about that for a minute. It's an act of grace. It's an opportunity for the man to look within, to peer behind his own motives, to, to look at his own expectations, to ask himself, what am I really here for? Who is this man really? What am I really expecting? What needs to happen here? It's an opportunity for him to discover what is really needed. And it's beautiful. As we read the story and we put ourselves in the middle of it, and we think about what it would have been like if it was me in the midst of that. It's beautiful to witness the, the development of this man's faith. Yes, it is true. There's a moment when, when faith comes to this sort of crisis of fulfillment where, you know, we, we can say the, the light clicks on, right? So you had this period of time and then there's this crisis moment where the light clicks on, where, you know, the, the heart, you know, is strangely warmed, to use a, a, a classic Wesley expression, where we can say in the words of the hymn we sang last week that my chains fell off, my heart was free, and I rose and I went forth and I followed thee. There's that crisis moment where faith explodes onto the scene in a crisis. But many, and many of you remember that, by the way. Many of you remember the moment when you first believed. You remember, you remember that moment where, a, a moment before you were not a follower of Christ, and, and the moment after you were. But faith, as we see in the story here, and as probably most of us, if not all of us who believe, have experienced in some form or fashion, faith often needs time to grow and develop, doesn't it? Kind of like the gestation period before birth. Is it a coincidence that Jesus tells Nicodemus that in order to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again? A baby isn't just conceived and born in an instant. A baby is conceived, and then there's a period of gestation before the birth happens. And just as that is true for a baby in the natural sort of physical womb, so it is true of those who come to saving faith in Jesus. There's that period of time where where their faith is developing and it's 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 becoming clear and it's maturing and it's it's finding its fullness and its its real expression. And watching Jesus grapple with this royal official as his faith is growing is really a beautiful thing to behold. You see the story here and the sign is not just about a boy, a son, being healed. It's about the healing of a father. A father who came to Jesus with a pressing need, but left with his greater need addressed. And once his heart belonged to Jesus, the result was more than the healing of a son. No, we're told in verse 53 that the result was the salvation of his entire family. As we already saw last week, Jesus' rebuke can seem harsh, can it? It can be, it can be painful. It can hurt. But Jesus' rebuke, its purpose is to provoke in people a deeper and more earnest request, even if it even if it's painful, even when it hurts. In fact, in Mary and in this official's life, I think we can see Psalm 119 come to life there in verse 71 and 72, where the psalmist says, My suffering was good for me <laughs> for it taught me to pay attention to God's decrees and your instructions are more val valuable to me than millions in gold and silver so perhaps today in your own suffering 
maybe Jesus has something greater in mind for you. Have you come to Jesus with need? I'm a pastor. I can't for a second stand here and tell you not to come to Jesus with your need. In fact, I would counsel you to come to Jesus with all of your need. Every need, great and small, spiritual, physical, emotional, mental, relational, whatever it is. He cares about it all. He's big enough to handle it all. He invites you to bring it all to him. But have you ever come to him with your need only for your prayer to go unanswered? Or for you to feel ignored? Maybe even rebuked? Well, I hope this story here today has encouraged you not to lose faith. Instead, I hope you're encouraged, even in the midst of your unanswered prayer, or that feeling of being ignored or rebuked or rejected, whatever the feeling you have is towards Jesus, I challenge you to follow the signs in his word. Signs that point straight to his heart. Don't wait to trust Jesus until after he's done the thing for you. Take him at his word like the man did. Take him at his word today. You read his word, you hear what he has to say. He hasn't answered your prayer, but you can trust his word. You can trust the testimony. You can trust the witness of his word about who he is and, and what he's come in the world to do. Seek him for who he really is. Set your affections upon him, not just on what he can do for you. The sequence matters. The royal official believed what Jesus said and returned home. Before he ever saw the miracle, he trusted the words of Jesus. And that's my challenge for you and for me in our walks with him today, to trust his words before we ever see his miracles. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you once again for the opportunity to gather as your people here online, to to sing our praises, to lift our prayers, to hear the proclamation of your word. And I, I know it's hard to listen to someone talk for a long period of time, especially when it's on a screen and your everyone's attention is, is sort of captive to one person and one angle and one shot. And it's just easy to, to lose attention and to focus elsewhere. But I pray, Lord, that somehow in the midst of this imperfect medium, you have spoken to the hearts of your people. And that we've been challenged to not just desire the, the, the nice things, the amazing, astonishing things that you are capable of doing, but that we would truly come to desire you. Because, Lord, you have demonstrated, without any shadow of a, of a doubt, your desire for us. Thank you, Jesus, for pursuing even me. Despite my confusion and my persistence in sin and my rejection of you, despite my self-centeredness and whatever else defined my life before the moment we met, you pursued me just the same. And you pursue every one of us here that is in, in the, within the sound of my voice. Help us to sense your pursuit and to open, open our hearts to the, the truth of your love for us. And if we're doubting, Lord, may we look no further than your cross where your love was demonstrated in all of its fullness, in all of its beauty, in all of its glory. And help us to believe, to trust your word, even if you don't do another thing. Lord, if, if all you ever did for us was die on the cross, that would have been enough. May it be true for each of us today, I pray in your precious name. Amen.